0: This is Barry Zalma, Zalma on insurance. Today I'd like to talk about the public insurance adjuster and insurance fraud. Although most, if not a great majority of public insurance adjusters are honest professionals, every profession has the occasional crook. And when a public insurance adjuster exceeds his or her authority, and attempts to defraud an insurer on behalf of the adjuster's client, the standard concealment or fraud provision of an insurance policy precludes the insureds from obtaining any recovery under their policies as the claims submitted by a person by the name of Burson, their public insurance adjuster, in his capacity as their agent, were fraudulent. This was a case called Astoria Quality Drugs versus United Pacific Insurance Company and Chubb Sons versus Consoli, a 2001 decision, both of the New York Courts of Appeal. The Texas legislature, attempting to protect consumers, has statutorily made a contract that is void for illegality under the common law enforceable or voidable at the option of the least culpable party, the insured, when a person contracts with the insured to perform services as a public insurance adjuster. In U.S. v. Sada, a th- 1999 decision of the Third Circuit, the government's evidence at trial showed that in 1990, appellants contracted Ezra Rishti, Isaac's cousin, for help in an insurance fraud scheme. Rishti was a public insurance adjuster in New York City who had conspired with various clients in over 200 fraudulent insurance schemes in the past. Rishti agreed to assist Isaac in filing a fraudulent insurance claim and enlisted the help of Morris Beta, a former employee, who by then owned his own public adjusting business. Rishti also enlisted the help of Sal Marcello, a general adjuster for the Chubb Insurance Group, which was Scrimshaw's insurer. Marcello assured Rishti that Chubb would assign him to handle the future Scrimshaw claim. In a case called U.S. v. Lem, a 1982 decision of the Eighth Circuit, a scheme to defraud insurers, was defeated with the testimony of a putative public adjuster. He explained to the trial court that the arson and insurance fraud activities underlying the convictions of various defendants resulted from fire to fire, but a general scenario was summarized by Eugene P. Ganst, the government's chief witness, who was a public insurance adjuster licensed in Minnesota. The government's case showed that at some point in the early 1970s, Gamps began mixing his legitimate adjustment activities with arson, eventually becoming the center of an arson ring alleged to have existed from April 1, 1975 through September 1, 1978. The basic mode of operation was that GAMST, or occasionally another co-conspirator, would recruit an individual to start an arson fire for insurance proceeds. GAMST would instruct the individual how to start the fire, how to act, and what to tell the authorities. After the fire, Gamps would pose as a legitimate public adjuster of an accidental fire. Occasionally, Gamps would also act as a private contractor and repair the fire damage in order to obtain a larger portion of the insurance proceeds. The roles of the other conspirators included providing seed money for the purchase of property, locating property for burning, providing property to be burnt, preparing and torching the property, and recruiting others to the scheme which resulted in eventual convictions. In Everett Cash Mutual versus Bonnie Sue Gibble, the Court of Common Pleas of Lycoming County, Pennsylvania, faced with a motion to exclude expert testimony of Patrick Cassidy, defendant's proposed expert witness. When Mrs. Gibble's Fine Furnace emitted soot into her home, and the claim made with her homeowner's insurance company was not handled. To Mrs. Gibbles' satisfaction, Miss Gibbles sought the assistance of Mr. Cabot, Cassidy, a public adjuster, and signed a public adjuster contract retaining Cassidy public adjustment to advise and assist in the adjustment of the insurance claim agreeing to pay a contingent fee comprising a certain percentage of the amount paid by the insurance companies in settlement of the loss and necessary expenses. After making several payments, including one which it offered as payment in full satisfaction of the claim, which defendants refused to accept, plaintiff filed a Lawsuit seeking a declaratory judgment that it had fulfilled all of its obligations under the insurance contract. Defendants counterclaim for breach of contract, negligence, intentional infliction of emotional distress, unfair trade practices, act violations, and bad faith, and also joined the adjusters brought in by the insurance company as additional defendants. In support of their claims, defendants plan to introduce the testimony of Mr. Cassidy as an expert witness and in that regard have provided plaintiff with a copy of his report in which he opines inter alia that plaintiff and additional defendants did not follow proper claims practice. Gibble, in response, argued that Mr. Cassidy is acting as an expert in his role as a consultant at the rate of $75 an hour, and only his work as a public adjuster is subject to the contingent fee agreement. The long-established rule of law that a special contract to pay more than the regular witness fees in ordinary cases is void for want of consideration and as being against public policy. Section 552 of the Restatement of Contracts, which provides in subsection 2, a bargain to pay an expert witness for testifying to his opinion, a larger sum than the legal fees provided for other witnesses, is illegal only if the agreed compensation is contingent on the outcome of the controversy. In Inray Mushroom Transportation Company v. Debtor, the court precluded an expert witness from testifying at trial because of a contingent fee agreement, whereby the expert had been hired to assist the debtor in a bankruptcy proceeding in collecting monies allegedly due to the debtor from a certain party. Public adjusters, when acting as an expert witness, must be paid a reasonable fee. They may not, however, share in the recovery. It would be wonderful if an expert witness could share in the recovery, but it would be dishonest. And I, in my career as an expert witness, have only testified based on an hourly rate, although a small contingency would have gained me a great deal more of money if the plaintiff had succeeded in their case. The testimony of interested lay witnesses about historical facts generally does not pose a risk of the same proportion as that of an expert with a contingent financial interest. The concealment of a contingent financial arrangement with the witness would be unconscionable. With the disclosure of such an arrangement, an opinion proffered by an expert would likely be so undermined as to be deprived of any substantial value. No juror would take such an expert seriously. Defendants' attempt to segregate Mr. Cassidy's work as an expert witness from his work as a public adjuster claiming it was merely one of form failed. It was also of no consequence that the public adjuster contract was entered into prior to the commencement of litigation. Mr. Cassidy's preparation of the expert report followed the commencement of litigation. And as defendants admit, Mr. Cassidy will be entitled under the contingent fee agreement to a percentage of any damages awarded for their loss. The court concluded, therefore, that the opinion rendered in the report is so undermined as to be deprived of any substantial value. While he may testify as a fact witness with respect to his adjuster role, Mr. Cassidy must be precluded from giving any opinion as an expert witness." A contingent fee can bring the expert much more than an hourly rate would provide. Because of the opportunity of a windfall, public adjusters and lawyers are willing to gamble. They will get nothing for their efforts in exchange for the opportunity of a windfall. That opportunity colors the testimony of a public adjuster who will profit from a verdict as an expert, and such testimony must therefore be precluded. When I was an adjuster, I I dealt with one public adjuster who had a methodology to increase the value of every fire claim he contracted with his insureds, and they would always lose 10 cans of Libby's peas, and a Lalique perfume bottle. When the insured was questioned about the list of claimed losses at an examination under oath, she testified that she always bought green giant peas, never more than two cans at a time, and had never even heard of Lalique perfume a brand, of course, that does not exist. Although René Lalique made beautiful crystal of perfume bottles, he never filled them with perfume. It is incumbent on an adjuster, when dealing with a claim presented by a public adjuster, to compel the PA, the public adjuster, to produce some evidence to support the claim, or review the claim in detail with the insured, who probably never saw the proof of loss and proof of claim prepared by the PA and signed it in good faith without understanding that the insured, relying on the honesty of the PA, was actually committing fraud that could void the entire claim. This video was adapted from my newest book, Zalma on Insurance Claims, Part 103, Third Edition, which was published today, July 9, 2021. If you found this video to be of interest or use to you, please convey it to your colleagues. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Rumble channel, my blog, and my files on Substack. Thank you for your attention.